Hello, I'm James Ball and welcome to Organising to Win, the trade union organising podcast from Unison Northwest. We're back after a short break and as this podcast episode goes out, we're now two weeks away from our annual organising convention, Skills for Strength, which is being held on Saturday the 10th of March this year in Manchester. In this episode, I'm going to speak to one of the keynote speakers at last year's Skills for Strength, American union organiser John O'Shafer, and we'll also find out more about the role of trade union environmental rep from one of our very own reps, Don Naylor, who's the environmental rep at Stockport Unison Local Government Branch. But first, as we approach this year's organising convention, I spoke this month to Unison Northwest Regional Secretary Kevin Nelson about the progress we've made in 2017 and the challenges that might face us in the year ahead. So what kind of year do you think uh, 2017 was for you in Northwest? I think a very good year, particularly in the context of continuing austerity, pressures on our branches, of uh, cuts, outsourcing and so on. Um, we had a great year. We actually recruited 22,700 new members in the Northwest. That's an increase of 3% on 2016. Um, in terms of the national picture, Unison recruited 155,000 new members in 2017. So one in seven new members of Unison joined in our region. So we can be very pleased about that outcome. It reflects a lot of hard work by our branches and our organisers. And it was achieved uh, at the same time that we launched our social care organising project, which was very uh, intensively resourced. So we had a particular focus on social care in Liverpool and Manchester City regions, um, particularly in terms of our organising resources. So in spite of that new um, initiative, we increased our rate of recruitment, so we're very pleased about the outcome. Another ambitious organising project we launched in 2017 was our Cumbria, Cumbria organising project. Uh, Cumbria is a vast geographical area with many uh, challenges facing the union and all of our branches have combined to support a regional pro project. We've set up a new organising uh, team in Cumbria and we will be targeting uh, key employers uh, in the important sectors in health and social care and education uh, to build the union, uh, secure recognition and grow our membership. And what are the main successes and lessons from the social care project? How, how will we take that forward in 2018? Yeah, it's, it's a two-year project, um, so um, there's three strands to it, and we made uh, progress in all strands. We um, managed to achieve high levels of workplace recruitment um, in target employers. Um, we uh, secured a lot of political support. Uh, through our political campaigning um, of key local authorities in the two city regions and thirdly we've mounted mass uh, legal action where there's been uh, non-compliance with the statutory minimum wage and we've secured um, significant compensation for our members and rectified uh, their, restored their rights to minimum wage so um, it's gone from strength to strength we're now in the second year and one of the challenges of the second year will be how we um, take it forward into the future as part of our day-to-day -day union work. And looking ahead at uh, 2018, the year ahead, do you expect 
2018 to be a similar year? The challenges will be similar. You know, the uh, the environment is very much the same. Austerity continues. There's major pressures on uh, the funding of local authorities and health trusts. Um, and it all begins again. You know, the wheel turns. We're now at the end of January. We've hit the ground running. Um, we've got a significant increase in the rate of recruitment so far this year. And we're 20% up on January 2017, so we're doing very well. But there are new challenges, and we've uh, taken some new initiatives to meet those challenges. Um, in particular, in housing, we're taking forward a, a project to organise key employers uh, in housing and to strengthen our activist base uh, in housing. Um, we're looking at the issue of retention of members um, because the turnover of members is high, too high. So we are looking at uh, forming uh, a group uh, of staff and branches to bring in new measures to uh, contact leavers to ensure that uh, our rec records are updated when members are outsourced and to generally tighten up uh, on retention of members uh, and a couple of new initiatives will uh, be, be brought in this year. We are looking at uh, a new strategic organising target uh, in the under five services, particularly uh, day nurseries and we're currently mapping uh, day nurseries across the northwest with a view to launching an organising campaign in the autumn. And uh, another initiative is the creation of a collective action team of organisers who will be responding to pressure points in terms of disputes, outsourcing and so on. So we give additional support to branches in those situations. So how will they, um, how will that work in practice? How will um, they uh, work with branches to identify those opportunities for collective action and, and, and local victories? Well, branches and organisers will need to flag up um, uh, pressure points. You know, we've got examples now where we've got a dispute in North West Ambulance Service uh, regarding the two-tier workforce uh, concerning the staff who previously worked for Arriva. They've been brought back in-house, but they're not on the rate for the job. Uh, so we are mounting an industrial action ballot uh, in that area. Uh, we've got a significant uh, large outsourcing proposal in Wigan and Lee and our organisers are working on the ground with the branch and our members to mount a campaign of opposition to that proposal. So wherever these issues arise, we want to ensure that campaign resources are brought into the picture and we put up a good fight. So branches need to identify possible opportunities for that and with their RO liaise with a view to getting access to some of those extra resources? Yes, that's right. We, we want to generate more collective action where there's employer proposals that can be detrimental to our members. We want to fight back, we want to mobilise and where possible we want to mount uh, industrial action to defeat those proposals and to protect our members' interests. So finally, um, obviously coming up to the annual organising convention in March, what message would you give uh, to Unison activists, those who've been around for years and those who might have just become activists as a result of uh, you know, the struggles they've faced in the last few months um, in terms of building the union the year ahead? I hope to see all of our activists at the uh, Skills for Strength convention on the 10th of March. Once again, we've got a great lineup of national and international speakers. More importantly than that, we've got some really impressive workshops where we'll be looking at case studies of 
uh, effective organising campaigns and fight backs, not just of Unison members but members uh, of other trade unions. And in this, the 150th uh, anniversary of the TUC, which was born in Manchester, what we want to see across the North West is a renewal of uh, trade unionism. So my message to all of our act activists is get, get active uh, and build a union. That was Kevin Nelson, Unison Northwest Regional Secretary, speaking to me earlier this month. Now, last year, we welcomed John O'Shafer to our annual organising convention. Uh, John O's been a union organiser with SEIU, the uh, AFL-CIO, and uh, ACTWU, which are all uh, trade unions or union confederations in the, in the United States for 30 years. He was the first organiser hired on the Los Angeles Justice for Janitors campaign in 1987 and led the project from 1991 through to 1996. Uh, and is that project on which the Ken Loach film Bread and Roses was based. Jono's developed and helped lead successful industry-wide organising campaigns in the healthcare industry, with airport workers and uh, with private security officers. The security campaign won historic victories for security officers in many of the America's largest cities, including uh, LA, New York, Chicago, Boston, the Bay Area, uh, Seattle, Minneapolis and Washington DC. And it was the first campaign in history to win global organising rights for workers employed by multinational employers employers in the service sector. Since 2007, John has been working on community and labour campaigns in numerous cities around the United States, exploring the idea of bargaining for the common good, going on the offence to hold corporations in the finance industry accountable for the defunding of public services and communities by involving those communities in broad trade union campaigns. And I spoke to him in March last year. So what is bargaining for the common good and, and why is it different from more traditional you know, models of trade union organising? Just on the face value, the definition, it's looking beyond the strict worker-boss relationship and the, and the life inside the workplace, but understanding the impact and importance of the economic conditions on workers' lives, both inside the workplace and their lives outside in the broader community, and also in the context of the public services and public sector, very much understanding that what public service workers do is intrinsically connected to what the public experiences. And so there is an absolute essential connection between the workers who provide the services and the people who receive the services, which the labor movement in the United States, and I think safely can say most places in the world, have completely left that apart, aside. They have not utilized or engaged in or attempted to bridge the gap between the workers and the people they serve. And I think that's uh, fatal uh, error in terms of the future of unionization and, and working conditions and, frankly, public services. So it sounds like it's almost blowing apart the uh, classic sectional argument that trade unions are only looking after the interests of a particular group of people and that that's all they care about. Um, so you know, rather than looking at the interests of wider society... Um, so what does that look like in practice in a union campaign where you're using bargaining for the common good? So um, 
it, frankly, it's in its infancy, really, um, although there's a long history of, of engaging uh, a broader, broader themes in work. Um, uh, there's a great article in Descent magazine by a man named Joseph McCartan from Georgetown University that I recommend uh, that sort of looks at some of the history of, of common good bargaining. But what it looks like is that uh, you bring communities of interest together, identify uh, both separate and mutual interest, um, and then present them at the collective bargaining table, as well as in other settings. Um, in Los Angeles, uh, we ran a campaign. We have a project called Fix Los Angeles or Fix LA. Um, and the first thing that we did was do an analysis of the impact of the revenue cuts and budget cuts uh, on both workers and the community. There had been huge cuts to workers. Uh, the workforce was cut by 5,000 over a, a very short period of time. And you can imagine what that means in terms of streets being cleaned and uh, alleys being cleaned and tri trees being trimmed and every imaginable problem that you can think of. Uh, because if you take the workers out of the equation, the jobs don't get done. And if you don't, if the jobs don't get done, then the people who live in those communities uh, suffer. Um, and not surprisingly, the communities that get hit the worst are the poorest communities, because rich people have figured out how to make how to complain and get their stuff cleaned up. So you go through the poorer neighborhoods where there's much higher density, and the alleys were piled up for years. Uh, you could not. Uh, go through um, streets without bumping into trash and other kinds of things, vacant lots. And so we uh, work, identified a group of uh, community-based organizations that do work in those communities, uh, particularly in South Los Angeles, um, and developed a set of demands that included what would be considered a traditional union demand of increasing the workforce. But rather than just talking about adding jobs or growing the union, um, it was about restoring services. So the actual agreement that we reached with the city was um, a uh, service restoration uh, agreement. The language says service restoration and job creation is what the language of the settlement was. And um, and so we were able to, by bringing the parties together, uh, force the city to add 5,000, commit to adding 5,000 jobs over a three-year period, including a very aggressive hiring program from local communities. Um, so focusing on hard-hit, low-income communities where starting to work those people into jobs. One of the things that the union did uh, was agree to some uh, entry-level positions that were almost like apprenticeship type positions because sometimes it's pretty difficult to get a, a job with in the public sector because you have to pass tests and this and that. And so the unions negotiated a couple of entry steps that allowed people to build up their experience before they had to take the tests. Um, and a critical element of it was fighting the city through a frame of the choices that they make of what to pay and what not to pay. 
Um, the city of Los Angeles, we did a study, it was the only study of its kind that's been done at this level that looked at the amount of fees that the city of Los Angeles paid to Wall Street for their lending, for their investment services, and other kinds of things. And uh, we found that the city of Los Angeles paid more in fees, not you know, costs of investment or anything, just in fees um, on their uh, Wall, to Wall Street than they spent on the streets of L.A., cleaning, the, fixing the streets of L.A. The, the street services budget was half the size of the Wall Street fees. And so we were able, you know, so the, the theme of the campaign was fix L.A., our streets, not Wall Street. Um, and it became something that the elected officials were very hard-pressed to dispute because they couldn't be seen as standing, saying they want to spend more money on Wall Street than Los Angeles. And so it put them in a box and we were able to be successful. So with a big campaign like that um, and looking at how you can build an effective alliance with um, aspects of the community, other stakeholders, how do you identify and choose which uh, community groups or which um, which stakeholders you're going to engage with? How, how did that process work? Um, <clears throat> it's, it's just like an organizing project. You know, you sort of build out from, from where, where you start. And, you know, we had a start, one starting place was just our membership and who, who, where do they live, who are they connected to. Second critical element was looking at which, as, which parts of the community uh, were most deeply impacted by the by the service cuts and the problems. You know, we don't have national health care in the U.S., um, and so that's not uh, a kind of fight that's that we can just jump into like you could with the National Health Service here in the U.K. But um, you know, there are neighborhoods because of the demographics of those neighborhoods that historically are just much harder hit and that is is the natural starting place for where we began to make connections with people um and and then you build out from there uh in the black community of los angeles there's a number of standing organizations that have built uh, a base and done a lot of activity the black churches were a critical piece of the coalition um we, Los Angeles is huge, um, and so we were kind of looked at the different pockets around the city, and then depending on the demographics of that uh, community and that was those neighborhoods, you could reach into the appropriate organizations. Churches are very important. Um, people belong and, and are committed to them. It gives you a, a moral standing in your description and just in, in your fight and and uh, discussion. That you know, sort of. And then it's self selection, just like with union organizing. You know, who decides to invest in it and feel committed to it, and who doesn't. So. I mean, you talked about, um, with that example as well, how you've combined some more um, classic traditional style un union demands around terms and conditions and material things for workers uh, with a, a wider agenda, which is part set by the community and, and the people that you're engaging with. Uh, how do you kind of make sure in that process that, um, that the union still that the role of the union, I suppose, and the role of unions in society is an important 
uh, kind of arbiter of change and um, source of power for work, for working people is is still you know at, maybe not at the top of the agenda but still significant and still recognised. Because I think sometimes people can worry if they get involved with the community that the, 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 the that will kind of take over and that they will be um, a tiny player or that the union will be a tiny player. I mean, does that matter? How do you build the union through that? So I see it differently, which is that uh, the, the membership of the unions uh, are multifaceted human beings. One hat that they wear or, or role that they play is, is that their role as a worker. And then there's their role as a member of a family. Uh, and then there's their role as a member of a community, and there may be a role as a member of a church or any number of other interests that those people are. Um, and I believe that we have done ourselves and continue to do ourselves as unions a huge disservice by actually identifying with the smallest aspect of who our members are. Um, I, California is one of the few states left in the country in the United States that uh, has a large number of union members still, uh, still in existence. There's about uh, 1.6, 1.7 million union members in, in California, if you combine all of the, the unions. And so as a percentage of uh, all of the workers in California... While it's a bigger cut than in a lot of states, it's still a minuscule percentage of the overall workforce of California. But, and we always present ourselves as the union. I was at a meeting with a bunch of labor leaders and I asked them what the biggest dues-paying taxpayer organization in the state of California was. And they all kind of sat there for a while and were trying to think of the California taxpayers group or what group. And I just stopped them and I said, it's us. At 1.6 million dues-paying members, we are the largest taxpayer organization in the state of California. Do we present ourselves that way? No. If we did present ourselves that way, would it, wouldn't it change significantly how people perceive what our what we are about. We are the biggest parents organization. We are the biggest homeowners organization. We are the biggest renters organization. You know, by the nature, very fact of our organizational capacity and the resources we have, being an organization of people means that we are all kinds of things, and yet we choose to present ourselves as a small slice of what that is. And I think that is uh, hugely harmful to both our capacity um, and our resonance and importance. Uh, most people in the United States, by a huge percentage, are not union members. The private sector union membership in the U.S. now is, is about 6%. The overall union membership is below 12%, which means that basically 1 in 10 to 1 in 15 of the people in the country are union members, or put the other way, 14 out of 15 or 9 out of 10 are not. Um, and that's counting workers only. If you count people as a whole, we are a minuscule person. So I, I remember thinking to myself, 
I don't, I'm not surprised that politicians don't take us seriously. They, they can do the math. We walk in and say, you have to do this. And they say, well, that's one fifteenth of the workforce. Now I'm going to go listen to the other 14, right? So we have to redefine and reimagine um, our role um, as a leading force for working people, not a self-interested special interest for the limited number of people that we happen to represent. So for our activists who are listening to this, running campaigns in their own branches, what core things do you think they could try or do differently in their own campaigns um, to, 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 to you know, take forward some of these ideas? So uh, the first thing is to just figure out what else are they connected to themselves you know we our first whenever you do any organizing um, if you want to lose if you want to fail you ask somebody to do things that they can't do so we usually if in good organizing we would say go talk to people you already know Go talk to people that you that you think will already agree with you, and then build out from there, sort of like a spider web. Um, and I would just encourage people to expand the who they know equation to include both people at the workplace and people in their communities. What what people do they know? Who do they know? When we um, did the Justice for Janitors campaigns in the U.S. Uh, back in the in the 90s and and into the 2000s with the security campaign, we never presented ourselves as a union organizing campaign. Uh, we presented ourselves as a community economic justice campaign. Um, it didn't mean we were trying we weren't trying to organize a union but by organizing a union and improving the income the wages and benefits of those workers we were going we were we knew we would infuse a massive amount of cash into the poorest communities in Los Angeles or the other cities we were organizing in um, and we did the math on that it's easy to do if you have 10,000 workers and they work full time that's you know uh, 2,000 hours per worker and you add a dollar an hour or 50 cents an hour, you can easily do the math of how much money is in people's pockets. Well, when working people put money in their pockets, it doesn't stay there long. They spend it immediately. So if we, were, if we can be successful in, trans, in getting more money into workers' pockets in poor neighborhoods, that's money that's going to be spent out in those poor neighborhoods and will help those neighborhoods grow without any tax, you know, taxpayer dollars or you know, welfare programs or anything. This is just about getting employers um, and, and the wealthy to put more money into the pockets of workers so they can spend it. Um, and when you think about it from that perspective, the people who should be supportive of that campaign include all the small business owners in those communities. Because if I live in a poor neighborhood, I'm going to shop in that neighborhood. And if I have more money to spend, I'm going to spend more money. And if I have less money to spend, I'm going to spend less money. So there's an automatic extension if I, for me to go to a small business owner in a poor neighborhood and say, you should support us making more money. So I suppose that's, um, again, 
it evolved from quite a classic argument that a trade union might use in just in justifying a call for um, higher wages or, or spending, but actually putting an organising angle on it and going to speak to those businesses that might benefit. Precisely. It's just taking it to its natural extension. I mean, this may be a little crude, but I'm known for that. Um, in churches... You know, so on a moral basis, pastors and reverends and priests um, are inclined, you know, more likely to support the rights of workers and the needs of, of, of workers to earn more money. But churches are also funded by people paying a percentage of their income. So I go to a church and I say to the pastor, not only is this the right thing to do, if we win, people are going to be putting more money in the basket. Because if you've got more money in your pocket, you'll put more money in the basket. And then that pastor potentially has a little bit more of self-interest and more motivation to go do it. I mean, I'm not saying it, in, that's why I said it can be a little crude. It's not in any way um, dismissive of the justifiable and righteous support that, that the religious community has given to workers over the years. But I do think pe we have to make it much more tangible. The economic gains that our work produces need to be much more tangible to the people that we interact with. And because of how we have come to be as a movement, we tend to uh, be very exclusive rather than inclusive. And that is uh, a big piece of why I think we're in trouble as a, as a movement. That was John O'Shafer speaking to me at last year's Skills for Strength organising convention. Now, most people have heard of the role of trade union representative, but less well known is the role of environmental rep. I spoke to Don Mailer, who's the, uh, the environmental rep at Unison Stockport local government branch, to find out more about what it's all about. So, Don, um, how did you become an environmental rep and, and what, what does that role really involve? Uh, I came, became an environmental rep at Stockport Unison because at the time, this is going back four or five years now, I was concerned that, uh, let's call them some green jobs at, at Stockport were, were disappearing. They, they were like fixed-term contracts, so I guess that was inevitably on the cards anyway in the kind of era of cuts and austerity. Uh, but raising it with uh, Stockport Local Government Unison um, Branch Secretary at the time, who was then Angela Rayner, uh, Angie suggested to me, and this was a completely new idea, I hadn't come across it before, why not become an environmental rep? So uh, started at that point, really. So what does an environmental rep do? Um, I don't think it's generally recognised perhaps in the same way that uh, many or all other branches will have health and safety reps, learning reps, equality reps, uh, that environmental reps actually sit alongside that. Um, so it's it's really an opportunity to, 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 I think, help members who may be concerned about environmental issues anyway that it is it's an entirely legitimate mainstream thing that trade unions can be doing it's it's just saying the, these are concerns if you if if you have concerns about uh wider concerns about social justice it's not a big step at all in fact it sits nicely alongside that that you you can legitimately be working towards achieving uh, environmental justice as well so in Stockport Council, as you said, 
uh, you know, due to the austerity measures that the council were undertaking, they removed those posts, albeit fixed term, that were uh, really contributing to the ecological sustainability of the region and promoting um, green policy in Stockport. Since um, you've, you've taken on the role of environmental reps and in- encouraged others to become active uh, as environmental reps in the Unison branch, have the union kind of taken on that mantle now? Um, we've certainly filled a space or gone into a space alongside something that seemed to be being um, abandoned, if you like, um, by the councillors as as full time employees left. Obviously, there was there were quite a number of areas that the, the council just wasn't able to support anymore. So yeah, I think it's it's. It's not a complete uh, fabrication to say yes, as the council, for understandable reasons, has has had to diminish its capacity in those areas. Then the union has been able to increase those. It's not a like for like replacement, obviously, um, but it, it is at least not letting things completely drift and not not get any attention whatsoever but it's the union now more so than than the council that's able to do that so since you've had environmental reps in the branch what have you achieved um in terms of uh you, you know promoting green policy in the council and also how has that environmental angle and having organising around those environmental issues informed the union's negotiating and bargaining agenda with the employer? Uh, I mean, one one key thing which was put into place early on was that um, through a joint environmental and climate change agreement, which is, is based on the standard TUC template, actually, um, the council and Stockport Unison have that agreement and a key um, component of that is that it's recognised that environmental reps have reasonable facility time which is relatively unusual it's there's probably aren't that many branches in the whole country who, who, who've achieved that I mean at a time when facility time is under attack generally to actually have swum in the opposite direction is, is a very big positive and how have you used that facility time to promote um the the, the, the kind of environmental agenda what what successes have you had locally in terms of um green progress i suppose if, if you like uh, well, a couple of examples. So we, we as in the, the branch environmental reps, have been invited to, to, to sit down in, a, in a, an internal uh, council working group, the Low Carbon Economy Group. So that that pre-existed as we've just, just kind of joined that and we're able to input from a, from a union perspective. Uh, also, we have, and it, to be fair, it didn't take much encouragement, but uh, because of our suggestion, the council now has, as part of its uh, online staff learning resources, um, they, they have linked through to a climate change awareness online course. It is provided by uh, another um, union um organized group called the greener jobs alliance but they they had this package we knew there was a a, a space whereby if anyone wanted to kind of begin learning about climate change and environmental issues there wasn't really anything there 
this 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 fulfilled that role and and because of our encouragement the council was quite happy to uh, facilitate that and i understand as well that um in terms of uh, the union's response to some of the proposals around cutbacks and uh, reform uh, in line with that austerity agenda that there's been a a kind of a green component, environmental component to some of those discussions as well. Um, tell us about the, the fleet car suggestions. Um, yeah, uh, it, it's been a relatively recently ongoing situation where um, staff terms and conditions are under threat. Um, one of the, or probably the most um, controversial or the one the one that um, really galvanized staff into kind of taking a stand on this was the threat to the uh, car user allowance um, and we didn't think that the, uh, the the initial proposal there was particularly um, it, 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 it it was approached it felt like with a very a much a one-size fits all attitude uh, and we thought it could be made a bit more sophisticated and give a wider range of options if part of the part of the setup going forward was to consider the provision of a fleet of electric pool cars i'm not saying that that's particularly got very far at the moment but it is something that we put on the table Fantastic, fantastic. So I understand that your branch is affiliated to the Campaign Against Climate Change Trade Union Group um, and uh, they've got a campaign around a million uh, climate jobs at the moment. Can you tell us a bit about that and why, why that's so important? Yeah, so our branch, as you said, is, is affiliated to that trade union group and that, that principal campaign of the One Million Climate Jobs it just recognises that um, if, if we, we, we need we need to create some low carbon uh, industries. If you like, we can't carry on business as usual. Everyone working in um, heavy industry, we we don't want those people to lose their jobs. There needs to be a structured, long term process for skilling people up uh, to to work in in the green industries. Uh, for example, um, retrofitting local housing stock. It's not all about new build, which we obviously need some of that as well, but a large part of the existing housing stock could be retrofitted, could be insulated better. People's um, heating and electricity bills could be reduced that way, so there's a social benefit because of that. Whereas if you contrast that with the... Um, claims of the fracking industry that it's going to create so many jobs uh, thousands of jobs for for people in local communities the reality of that if you if you do the background reading look at case studies from australia and the united states it's transient work the, the workforce moves around from well to well and it doesn't other than perhaps a few low or unskilled jobs it doesn't create jobs for local communities it just leaves them with the problems and the mess it doesn't provide them with opportunities and employment 
Well, that's all we've got time for for this month, but we'll be back next time when I'll be speaking to some of our invited guests at this year's Skills for Strength convention happening on the 10th of March. In the meantime, please subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes, and if you'd like to access information and resources relating to this programme or listen to previous podcasts, please check out our website at www.unisonnw.org forward slash podcast. 